would you stand or remain standing as we hear from the word of the Lord from Job 1. This is Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell among, upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking... There came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christina. Len said it was just short, just slightly shorter than last week's <laughs> passage. So I guess that's good. I sound very bassy right now. 
Uh, I just wanted to mention uh, the Redeemer Community Board is out there. It's been sort of shape-shifting over the past few weeks. So we kind of have some labels now, and we're going to continue to talk about that and use that, but, but it has two big categories on it, gathering events, opportunities to gather with people not in your community group, things going on in our, the Redeemer family, and then serve, opportunities to serve and connect with each other and serve the community. And those are things that are not organized by our staff, by Redeemer, but kind of happening among our community. And so we're going to continue to highlight those, and then the, they will be posted and available to see on Church Center as well. So we're working on that. Um, Nate's kind of spearheading that, so you have questions, comments, thoughts. Nate's the one to talk to about it. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Job chapter 1. Father, we ask uh, now that you would come and be present with us. You would enlighten our hearts and our minds. Give us grace that we might uh, receive mercy and help in our time of need from you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So for the past, uh, I don't know, number of years, 10 years, 15 years, with the, especially with the internet and the access to information, there's been a lot of high-profile deconversions from Christianity. You may have heard about Josh Harris. I may have mentioned that a few weeks ago. Josh Harris wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye back in the 90s, which was big in purity culture and evangelicalism. And, and he, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, sort of very publicly left Christianity. There's Marty Sampson, he wrote the song, Oh, Praise the Name. We sing it here all the time. And about a month after Josh Harris, Marty Sampson posted and said, hey, I'm, I'm no longer a Christian. Abraham Piper, the oldest son of John Piper, has deconverted and then reconverted and then deconverted again. Michael Gunger, Bart Ehrman, Rhett and Link are two kind of comedians that have publicly shared their story of deconverting from Christianity. And there's a lot of these stories out there right now that you can read and find of people who once were Christians, once were in the church, and are leaving the church. And there's many others, many lesser-known people, friends of mine, friends of yours, some of our children. There's people we know who are going through this painful process of walking away from Christianity. And this idea of deconverting, of leaving the faith, is really nothing other than this process whereby we look at the world and we say, you know what, I don't think that the God of the Bible actually has the corner on the good life. We say, I was trying to find the good life and in doing that I was following God, but I'm, I'm not sure that following him is actually going to lead where I want to go. My life as a Christian is not giving me the results that I had hoped for. And I'm on the path to walking away, to deconverting, to rejecting that God, that fearing the Lord really is the you know, the, the, the foundation of wisdom and the good life. As we enter this third part of our series on the good life, we're looking at the book of Job. I want to suggest that today, and this may sound shocking to you, but all of us are at some level on the road to deconverting. All of us are on this pathway, the same pathway that these people that we talk about and see, the same people that we engage with, we are all at some level on the path to deconversion, we are all struggling day by day to believe that God really can provide for us the good life that he promises. And this book of Job, which is typically thought of as a case study on suffering, I think is a lot more about the relationship that people have towards God than it is anything else. How do we relate to God when our best efforts do not produce the results that we're looking for? And so, as we look at this first chapter today, by the end of the next 20 minutes, I want to convince you, or hope that you're convinced, 
less of your own wholehearted commitment to God, but more convinced of God's wholehearted commitment to you. Right? So I want to look at this. I want you to be at the end of 20 minutes less convinced that you are wholeheartedly following God, but more convinced that God is wholeheartedly committed to you. I'm just going to recap our series real fast. We started back in Genesis. Eve is standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question is, how am I going to get the good life? How am I going to experience tov? That's the Hebrew word for good. How am I going to get good stuff and avoid bad stuff? And she looks at the tree of good and evil, and she, looks at, she hears God's voice say, hey, come over here, and I will give you the good life. And she says, you know what? I'm going to reach out here, and I'm going to take this from the tree. And she takes it for herself. And that's where we started the story, and now the, the, the scripture kind of is this story of people, human beings, trying to get back to finding the good life. And these three books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, all offer three different perspectives on the same question, how do we have the good life? How do we find goodness? And Proverbs, we looked four weeks into Proverbs and saw that the world kind of has this design, this moral fabric, this cause and effect, where if you follow the rules, if you follow what Proverbs says, you will get Good, right? This is what we saw the whole first nine chapters of Proverbs. Like, hey, this is what will happen if you follow these Proverbs. If you listen to the wisdom of God, you will have tov. And this is sort of an optimistic perspective about the world. And then we looked at Ecclesiastes for four weeks, and Ecclesiastes was kind of like, I'm not sure the rules are working. I followed the rules. It doesn't seem to be producing the good life, or at least I can't ensure that it is. And so this is, this is a very pessimistic view of the world. And we're not sure how to get the good life, or even if it is there at all. And I don't know if this is true for you, it's true for me, and I've mentioned this to a number of people, that thus far, those nine sermons have been very unsatisfying to me as a, as a whole. I kind of have felt like we haven't clearly gotten to the point where we, I understand, even from me preaching to you, about what the, the scripture says clearly about the good life. And I said this to Mike uh, Quint earlier in the week, and he said, you know, I think the series kind of has been unsatisfying because it's not finished yet. So we still have one more perspective to go. If this cake tastes bitter, it's because it's missing an ingredient. And that missing ingredient is the book of Job. So we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at the book of Job, this case study on how suffering affects our relationship to God. So we're going to start there today, how suffering affects how we relate to God. And then next week, Mike is going to talk about why suffering is so hard for us to accept and then in week three, we'll conclude at the end, we'll conclude both the book of Job and our entire series and hopefully have a very clear, direct picture of what the scripture teaches at its basic core about what it means to live the good life. So let's jump in and look at Job chapter one. I'm gonna start, Molly's gonna follow along up there on the screen. Uh, let's start in Job chapter one. This is how the book is introduced. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Now, here we meet the protagonist. This is this guy named Job. Um, Uz is kind of this unknown place. Historians don't know where it is. It's very vague. The historical details of this are very vague. And that's actually an important thing to note, is that the historical particularities of this story are not important for understanding the story. Because I want you to get distracted by the historical particulars here. Uz is almost intentionally sort of like, we don't know where that is because it doesn't really matter. This is about humans relating to God. Okay, this is a wisdom story. So it reminds me, and you may not have read this book. I've, I read like halfway through and bailed out, but uh, Dostoevsky wrote a book called The Brothers Karamazov. I can't pronounce that. Is that how you pronounce it? English people? Is that good? And, it, and it's a story where there's, there's story points in there, but then you go like three, four chapters in a row of like philosophical and theological dialogue. And the story is a backdrop 
for exploring deep issues of philosophy and theology and relate, how we relate to the world. And the same thing is true of Job. There's a story here, but the point is to explore these theological and philosophical things. So the story starts here, it frames it out here in chapters 1 and 2, and then from chapters 3 to 41 is dialogue. It's poetic dialogue, it's not a transcript of what was said, it's kind of a re, it's, a, it's an exploration of these philosophical and theological ideas set into poetry, and it's God, and Job has some friends, and Job talks, and his friends talk, and you kind of go through a bunch of these cycles, and then at the end there's an epilogue that kind of ties up the story. And I say all that just to say that as we think about this today, I don't want you or any time you read Job to, to get tied down or bogged down in, in sort of the details. There's a lot of questions, and especially as we get to the next scene here with Satan in it, you can, there's a lot of questions you can ask. There's a lot of ways to get distracted from the main point of the story. So there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and here's what we know about Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job's a good dude. Okay, he's like, he's church people, right? He shows up to church, he comes and listens to the preacher, he goes home, he does his prayer every morning. He's, he's not just a nice guy. I mean, we know there's nice people who are not actually like good people. He's a good person. He's righteous, he's upright, he fears God. He wholeheartedly pursues what God is said to do. He's wise. Okay, I can imagine Job has like a pocket version of Proverbs and he carries it around and he like opens it up and he's like, all right, what should I do in this situation? What should I do in this situation? Job is honestly trying to do what God has asked him to do. He's a righteous, good person. Okay, he's come and he's listened to all my sermons about the good life and he's actually understood them and applied them and it's worked for him, right? Verse three, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and so many servants that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East, right? Here's exactly what Proverbs tells us. Fear the Lord, have a good life. We see it happening to Job. He's wise, he fears the Lord, and things are good. He has lots of camels. I don't know if this is a lot of camels, but apparently it is, right? It's a lot of camels. He's got a, he's got a Tesla. Things are going well for him, right, Jim? So he's, he's wise, and things are going well. And this is what we would expect, right? We find somebody who's doing the right thing, who's being wise, and it's working. It's good. Fear God. Find Tov. At the same time, it's important to note that it's not like this is some fairy tale land, right? Verse 5 says that after the feast of his kids had run their course, Job would send and consecrate his children, and then he would rise up and he would offer sacrifices on their behalf because he said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their heart. So he's aware that like this world that he lives in is not perfect. Things could go wrong. Things may have already been going wrong and he's trying to prevent that. So he's he's really trying sincerely with wholehearted devotion to follow after God. It may be tempting and I think I in the past I've sort of assumed that Job is some sort of like special case. That he's this like mythical creature of this righteous person who's doing the right thing and I think He's like very righteous and very rich. Neither of those things apply to me, so therefore I don't, I don't see myself in this. But I think that's a very wrong way to look at this. I think Job actually is sort of Joe Christian. Right? It's, it's what we want to be on our best day. Like We want to be the, the person, the man, the woman, the father, the, the mother, the daughter. We want to be the person that is following God, that's being wise, and that's receiving the good life. Like This is what we want to be on our best day. This is what we're trying to be, sincerely trying to follow God. And I know many of you, and I know myself, and we, 
we want to follow God. We want to be sincere. We want to do the right thing. And we're not doing it perfectly, but we're trying, right? We're trying to do what God has asked of, of us to do. And so Job, I think as we enter this story, we need to see, see ourselves in Job. And you see, this story is not about a mythological fairy tale creature named Job. It's about us. It's about people who are trying sincerely to follow God and experience the good life. Now, Job's wholeheartedness, his sincerity is about to be tested, right? It's about to be tested. Let's read in chapter, or in verse 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came from among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Now in this scene, again, there's a lot of things you could get distracted by right away. You're like, what, what's going on here? Why is Satan, in, who are the sons of God? Like there's a lot of complicating things that you could get distracted by. And this is in some ways like Jesus' parables where if you are asking questions about, you know, the middle name of the prodigal son, you're missing the point of the parable, okay? So don't get distracted by all of this scene. We need to understand the point of what, why this scene is in the story. And here's the point of why this scene is in the story. It's to ensure that we read the rest of Job understanding that there's no earthly purpose or reason why Job is suffering. You see that? There's, Job did not do anything wrong. Like we, we were being told this from the very beginning. As you read the rest of the story, you need to know and understand that Job did nothing to deserve what he is about to experience. That this comes from some other place for some other reason that's unknown to Job and will never be known to Job. Okay? His suffering is completely unexplained. It's important for reading the rest of Job because so much of the time we spend our entire lot, relationship to suffering trying to explain it away. Right? We want to rationalize it. This happened because I did this thing. This happened so that on the other side of it, I can minister to people who after me who experienced that. Like we, we rationalize and we explain. And we, have, we have this desire to like see, you know, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how our suffering is for good, right? And we could read Job and try and be doing that same thing for Job. And the story author is like, time out, don't even try, right? There is no reason why this is happening to Job. This has to do with this other conversation between Satan and God. And we need to read the rest of the book with that assumption. And here's the big question that Satan asks. God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job, and Satan says this in verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? It's a rhetorical question that Satan is saying, No is the answer. Does Job fear God for no reason? Of course he doesn't. Of course he doesn't serve you for no reason. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Job doesn't serve you for no reason. It's like it reminds me of the, when the, when the uh, you know, 30-year-old woman marries the 70-year-old billionaire. And you're like, she married him for love. She's, un, she's wholeheartedly devoted to him. Well, she might be, but it's, she's wholeheartedly devoted to him for his money. And that's sort of what Satan's like. I think Job is wholeheartedly devoted to you for some other reason than that he just, out of the pure goodness of his heart. 
right? It's like because wisdom, because wholehearted devotion to God is working for him. He's, he's pursuing God and he's getting what he wants. And we know this, right? Wholehearted devotion to God is easy when God is playing by the rules, right? When we work hard to train our kids, right? We follow the Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When we follow that and it works, it's easy to be like, oh yeah, God said that. That settles it. I believe it. And we follow it and it works. When we work hard and we get a promotion, it's not hard to follow God because that's what Proverbs says. Work hard, get a promotion. It's not hard to follow God when we live to our life expectancy. When, when, when things are going the way that we want them to go and expect them to go and that Proverbs says they're going to go, it's not hard to be wholeheartedly devoted to God because things are working for us. And I, I watched, you guys know I'm, I like my iPhone. We all like our iPhones. Well, once a year I like to watch the release video of the new iPhone. So iPhone 13 was announced last week. I watched it just like I'm supposed to. And about halfway through the, the presentation, whoever was the presenter at this point says that the iPhone 13 comes with a screen that is 50% stronger than all of the competition. 50% stronger screen, shatterproof from all the competition. You know what people do when they hear someone say that? They're like, what happens if I drop this off my roof? What happens if I drop this off the Bank of America building? Right? You've seen these iPhone videos, they, take, they unbox a brand new iPhone, and they start trying to destroy it. They're like, I want to stress test this, I want to check, check these claims, right? If it's really 50% stronger, what can I do? What is the tolerance of this screen for strain and stress. So I want to stress test this iPhone. I'm going to drop it from my waist. I'm going to drop it from my shoulder. I'm going to drop it from, I'm going to chuck it out the window. I'm going to hit it with a sledgehammer. How much can this thing take? How much stress can the integrity of this glass take? This is what Satan says. Hey, God, what if we, what if we drop Job off the Empire State Building? Will he... Will his, what will happen to his wholeheartedness if I drop him from here? What will happen to his wholeheartedness if I drop him from here? What about from here? Like that's how I think Satan's like, hey, you want to make this claim that Job is two times more righteous than all other people? Okay, let's stress test this claim. Let's see what happens if we begin to strip away any other reason that Job may have to follow you and see what happens. And it's almost, it's, it's so weird because in the text here, this, these horrible things are happening to Job, and yet it's almost comical the way it's presented. Right? You see this like servant runs up, he's like, okay, all the camels got stolen, and while he's still speaking, another guy runs up, and he's like, oh, and by the way, your, your property is now gone, and oh, by the way, fire came from heaven. And the, the actual way it's told is almost comical. Like, it wants you to see, it's like an iPhone stress test video. Like, it's serious, but it's also kind of funny at the same time, because you're like, what is, how, is this, are you for real? Like, this is happening to Job? How much can he take? Like, when is he going to just shatter all over the floor? And the big question as we come out of that section, verses 13 to 19, as you hear this, like, piling up of Job's suffering, is what's the status of his wholehearted devotion to God at this point? It's like you've thrown him down on the floor a hundred times. Now let's pick it up and let's see, is the screen cracked? This is what suffering does to all of us. This is why this is not just a Job thing. This is an all of us thing. And this happens in many different ways and shapes and sizes. 
Right? If it's easy to follow God when, you know, you parent your kids and they come out the way that you want, it's harder to follow God when you parent the kids the way you're supposed to and they don't follow God, right? Is that true? It's harder to follow God when you go into a church and you expect to be loved and cared for and you actually get a bad experience. When you're the, on the bad end of a bad, toxic leadership. I've seen this in the Mars Hill podcast. Right? With Josh Harris, he's rejected Christianity. He helped create this purity culture in the late 1990s with his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and now him and thousands of other millennials are citing that very thing as the reason for them not to trust God because they've suffered in some way from trying to follow what they thought God was saying. It happens in intellectual suffering, right? Ecclesiastes is like, hey, none of this seems to make sense, and when we, so many times we have conversations with one another, we have conversations with ourselves, like, I can't make sense of what's going on in my life. It makes it harder to wholeheartedly follow God because we can't make sense of it. You pray for someone for years and years and years and years and it doesn't seem to work. You have spiritual disciplines that you pursue for years and years and years and it's not, it's not producing the expected result and it makes it hard at least to be wholehearted. Right? Like you might continue to go through the motions but you don't want to. It's almost like for, for folks who are stuck in some kind of bad marriage, it's like you're not going to leave, but you want to. And I think some of us feel that way at, in our Christian lives. Like we're not going to leave. We're not going to leave God. We're not going to leave Christianity, but we we might want to. We might be tempted to. In our heart of hearts, it's really hard to read my Bible in the morning with a whole heart because of what I'm experiencing. Have you experienced those days in your life where it's hard? to read the Bible with a sense of believing because of what's going on around you in your life. Not to mention what happens to Job in chapter 2. When you, I can tolerate all these other things. I can tolerate my car breaking down. I can tolerate bad church experiences. I can tolerate not understanding the world. But now, I'm in, now I have chronic illness. How does that change my ability to wholeheartedly follow after God? Right, and begin in small ways, our wholeheartedness begins to break down. Like we, we're not as committed to being here with God's people. We're not as committed to being in community with one another. We're not as committed to our spiritual disciplines. We have this loss of our authenticness in following God. And that is the path to deconversion. Do you see that? Like when our wholeheartedness begins to fall away, where does that lead to? Or we struggle to believe that God is good. We struggle to believe that God is just. We struggle to believe that God is present. We struggle to believe that God is real. And there's this pathway as we lose our authenticness, as we lose our wholehearted ability to pursue God. Because the things in our life, the suffering that we experience is stripping away all the other reasons. It's clarifying and revealing what's underneath. Why do we really follow after God? Many of you, many of us, we're, we're here. You may not have told anyone, but you're struggling to wholeheartedly believe that God is good. You're struggling to wholeheartedly follow him because of things that are happening in your life or around you. Where are you in that? It's a hard and awkward question to ask. It requires some introspection. Where is my wholehearted devotion to God breaking down? That's some of you. But then there's this threshold that we reach there's like, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling, I want to be wholehearted, and then somewhere there's a, there's a 
there's a threshold that we cross. And this is what happens to Job's wife. In Job chapter 2, verse 9, after Job is just like covered in sickness and he's dying, basically. And his wife looks at him and he, she says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Her threshold has been broken. She snapped. She's like, I'm not even pretending now. I'm not even trying anymore. I'm done thinking that God is good. I'm done thinking that God has the path to the good life. Her integrity has been broken. Her wholeheartedness has been crushed. Some of, some of you are in that spot or have been in that spot. There's an enormous pain in your life and there's no answers and there's no explanation and it, you want to abandon belief in the goodness of God because it's really hard to hold on to. There's one more thing, one more servant that runs up to you and tells you that something bad has happened and you're like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. All of these things, all of the suffering, all of the, the times in our life when what we're trying to do doesn't produce the expected results, it challenges us. It tests us. It stress tests our commitment to God. And it pulls down at our wholeheartedness when God doesn't seem to be playing by the rules. And I think all of us are on this path. We're all day by day struggling to believe that God is good. We want to, and things happen that are unexplainable, and we're like, what do we do? How do I continue to believe that God is good? Let's look at Job's response. Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, and he tore his robes, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's like Job was thrown off the Empire State Building, and his screen doesn't have a scratch on it. What? Like, how many of us think we would be Job rather than Job's wife at this moment? If we're honest, I think we're a lot closer to Job's wife than to Job. Right? And I suspect, and I think I would have thought that the next thing I should say to you reading this is try harder to be like Job. Just hold on. Just don't give up. Just stiffen up and believe. Just Embrace it. Just hold fast to your integrity. Don't give up. Part of me wants to say that. But there's another way to read this. And once I saw it this week, I couldn't unsee it. Right? Because how is Job presented by these verses? He's presented as an innocent sufferer. He's presented as an innocent sufferer. Right? Job's response is not a human response. It's not my response to suffering. It's not your response to suffering. Job's response is the response of an innocent sufferer. Right? Like the whole biblical story is the story of humans who abandon God for their own way, starting from Eden and going to the end of the story. So instead, when we read this, when we get to Job, and we see it says, Job did not sin, who should we think about? We should think about Jesus. Job is a pointer, he's a type, he's an indication of Jesus. Only Jesus can respond to suffering without shattering. Only Jesus can do that. 
Jesus had every reason to expect that from his good works, he should get good in return. And yet, what did he get? He got all of our breakage. He got all of our broken screens on him. Only Jesus can enter suffering and not crack. When we read this, Job is pointing that way. He's pointing to a better human, a better person who actually doesn't crack. And as trite as this may seem to connect the metaphor, it's like your screen, uh, your, the integrity of your wholeheartedness is broken already and will continue to be broken. What you need is not to try harder not to get it broken. You don't need a life-proof case. You need the, the screen protector that is Jesus. We need to be protected by and associated with and running to Jesus instead of just buckling down and trying to hold on to our faith by ourselves. We have to see in Jesus this only human being who can experience suffering and not crack. When, when Job's wife says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves every day and we have to realize that so often our answer is no. And when that happens, when we see that, instead of redoubling our efforts, we need to abandon ourselves to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to come to his table, to hear his story, to know that he is the one who holds us, right? Hebrews 12 says that Jesus is the author, the beginning, it says, and the perfecter, the end. He's the beginning of faith, believing, wholeheartedness. He's the beginning of that, and he's the end of that. Connection with him is the only way that you will get to the day of your death with wholehearted devotion to God because you can't do it yourself. You're not doing it yourself. We are way more like Job's wife than like Job and what we need to be reminded of is that Jesus is wholehearted on our behalf and invites us to look at him when we are walking away. It reminds me of another story. I just want to close with this. This is from Luke 22. Right? If you, you read Job 1 and then you go and you read Luke 22, verse 31, Peter, Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat. Like, doesn't that sound like Job? Like, he wants to throw you off a building, Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says this amazing sentence. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Right? What happens seven, eight, ten verses later? Peter's wholeheartedness cracks in half. <laughs> he denies Jesus. And yet Jesus brings him back and makes him the foundation of the entire church. The greatest apostle. That's what Jesus does for our faith. Let's run to him. Jesus is praying that our faith may not fail. The next two weeks, we're going to see that even Job begins to lose his wholeheartedness. By the end of the book, he said some pretty radical things about God to God's face. Mike's going to walk us through next week why suffering makes it so hard to believe. And then we'll find out in week three that the only solution to having a good life is a face-to-face -face interaction with God at the end of Job. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story that teaches us that in the midst of suffering, um, 
It's not our job alone to be wholehearted. That you are praying, you are drawing us, that only Christ can stand up to suffering without cracking. Let us look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith to be encouraged, to be built up, and to believe when it's the hardest to believe. I pray for every person in here as they suffer the small things, the inconveniences, the frustrations, the lost jobs, the lost relationships, um, and suffer huge things, losses of life, that you'd give us grace to know that it's not us holding on to you, but you holding on to us. We pray this in your name. And Father, now we ask, as we do each week, that you'd bless our gifts as we give, that it would reflect our uh, belief and desire to believe that you own all things. Um, bless these gifts now and this week. Amen.